You're listening to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline, the podcast that brings you breaking news about democracies breaking. How can we help? I'm Jed Sugarman. And I'm Julie Sook. We're both law professors at Fordham Law School in New York City. This summer, women faced the crisis known as Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. The Supreme Court ended women's right to abortion, saying that the Constitution simply did not protect it. Is the Constitution in crisis? And can women save our democracy? Dahlia Lithwick published Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America last week. So we invited her as our guest on the Constitutional Crisis Hotline immediately. Lady Justice is a must-read, and don't just take my word for it. Take Oprah Winfrey's word for it. Breaking news today as we record is that Oprah Winfrey put this on her book club must-read list. And it also landed on the New York Times instant bestseller list uh, today as well. So, And I also saw that Wonder Woman was reading it. Uh, Linda Carter tweeted today that she is in the middle of it. So from Lady Justice to Wonder Woman, we're here with Wonder Woman Dahlia Lithwick. Welcome, Dahlia. We're so honored to have you on the Constitutional Crisis Hotline. Well, thank you for having me. It's a treat. And it's nice having done a bunch of interviews with not lawyers <laughs> to get to talk to a bunch of lawyers because... Um, we can really, let's, let's do it. That's great. So can you tell us more about the book, what prompted you to write it, and why the stories you tell in it matter for this constitutional crisis moment we're in right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you said it, Jed. I think that in some sense, when I started this, I wanted to just write a record, you know, to have an archive of what had happened in the Trump years and, and all the ways in which the law and the rule of law won, right? Because I think we keep telling stories about how we lose and we lose and we lose. And the truth is, the Trump administration was the losingest uh, presidency in history, right? They lost a lot and they lost for reasons that we as lawyers like to chuckle about, right? Because they didn't do just simple, simple uh, procedural things. They were careless. They lied transparently. And so I think what I wanted to sort of at least start with was just a love letter to, you know, the dorks in the trenches who get it right with like a blue book in one hand and a yellow pad in the other because they won a lot. And that was what I was trying to do. And I think, and we can talk about this in the context of Polly Murray, but I also really wanted to think about who gets famous and who gets credit for big victories because lawyers get neither usually. And, you know, I think um, we have this dangerous idea that, you know, Bob Mueller's going to save us and Merrick Garland's going to save us, that there's going to be the one lawsuit and then everything is going to be okay. And and all of us know that that's not how the law works and it's not how the law should work. The law works because lots and lots and lots of people toil away in obscurity for decades without credit. And so I think I wanted to lift up that as well, because I think particularly for law students, it's really important to see yourself in Robbie Kaplan or to see your Yourself in Becca Heller or in Nina Perales, and we don't tell those stories enough. So I think that was the intent. And then, as you know, Julie just said, there was a turn, and the turn was we freaking lost the farm uh, this term, and we lost everything. And Dobbs was a gut punch, and I should be candid and say I had to rewrite the introduction, I had to rewrite uh, the epilogue, I had to rewrite 
the abortion chapter, you know, in, in just three or four compressed days post-Dobbs. So then suddenly it was a really different book. And I think it's a book, not just an archival history book of, you know, the great heroes of the Trump era, but a much, I hope, more ambitious claim about the ways in which law can continue to serve us and to save us. And that, these are not stories of, you know, women using their voices or women using their anger. Those things are important. We're seeing that on the streets of Iran right now. But it's more than voices and anger. It's real, genuine, craftsmanship, brilliant, you know, finely honed uh, technical skills that allow them to win a lot. And I want to tell that as part of the story of what we can do going forward, because I think we're very inclined to just say, well, the Supreme Court sucks. It's all broken. You know, I'm done. And I want to tell the story of a constitutional history that has always been fits and starts and always been huge catastrophic losses. And nevertheless, these tools in the hands of visionaries and courageous lawyers can often get us past even the worst times. So that's a very long precy, but I think that it went from being a history book to, I hope, something of a blueprint, except I guess I would call it a pink print because this book is jarringly pink. So we have two members of your target audience here as part of our format on the hotline. We have two Fordham Law students. Sam has the first question. Hi, I just want to say it's really incredible to be here, and I'm really excited to get to ask you this question. I read your book, and I really enjoyed it. I felt like it kept bringing me back to this question that I've been wondering over the last few years, and especially in the last few months, as I feel like we young women in law school are going back to these same fights are like grandmother's generation of lawyers and law students were fighting for. Um, I wonder what does progress actually look like for women in America when this swinging back and forth keeps happening? And is there actual real substantive change? I think it's kind of been easy to lose hope. And I, I liked your, your perspective on it. So I'd love if you could talk more about that. Yeah, I love that question, Sam. I mean, I think part of the answer is welcome to my nervous breakdown, right? Because I feel this in my bones, you know, and the book starts uh, by design with Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt because I really thought, you know, when I saw, when I sat in the court in 2016 and watched that being argued and, you know, what I thought of was like the Harlem Globetrotters, you know, we got Kagan, we got Sotomayor, we, you know, Ginsburg, and we've got Breyer and look at them and like, wah the fans go wild. And it was so thrilling to see what felt to me, not just like parody in terms of suddenly there was some critical mass of women on the court speaking. And, you know, every single study, by the way, shows that when you have women on corporate boards, uh, it's not until there are three uh, that they are heard, right? Like one doesn't work. Three is when they start to talk and they get listened to. So three is kind of a magical number. And I just thought that was it. You know, we were so close and here we have it. And then boom, right? Within a few short months, we are, you know, listening to a serial um, sexual harasser and abuser telling us that he wants to put women in jail. So, of course, right? That happened in a blink. But I think, and this is a thing that Sherilyn Eiffel said to me on my podcast that I really sit with Sam and I, you know, I should find the audio and send it to you. But she always reminds me that like January 6th took 
way too much attention away from January 5th. And that January 5th was a miraculous day in constitutional history, not just because a black man and a Jewish man uh, were voted into the Senate, but that that was done by the work, the really hard work, principally of people in color in Georgia who organized in ways that surmounted demonstrable vote suppression. And like... That was a huge day, and that could have been a chapter two. And I think, you know, there's there's a way in which it's very easy to say these fits and starts, these ebbs and flows mean that we are fighting the same battles as our grandmothers. And I am with you. I mean, I think it is astonishing that we are now looking at, you know, miscarriage is going to be investigated and fetal endangerment. I mean, this is insanity. Our grandmothers didn't live actually in quite as pernicious, I think a a prosecutorial world as we might be entering. But that said, you know, we do have Obergefell. We do have, um, you know, massive progress. We do have, (laughs) at least until uh, uh, the end of this term, the Voting Rights Act. There are amazing, amazing, amazing bits of progress. And and I would say one other piece of it that I think was something that I, I think maybe as law students you'll appreciate, which is, I think it matters that Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn dust off the KKK Act, right? That nobody had taken seriously. And a bunch of people said, you know, this is an old vestigial uh, uh, statute. It can't possibly help you. I think there's a creativity and um, a willingness to take risks with even old laws that seem inapposite and, and other people tell you, like, there's nothing to be done here. And and so I, I want to say, I think that I think of it as like we're in a building and like it feels like the ceiling is crashing in and I get that. But the foundations are really strong and they're strong in no small part because we continue to believe that we can use them to do good. And so I don't want to seed ground. I don't want to say we have nothing. I think that's what the other side wants to hear. We have nothing and it's hopeless. What do we have when we talk about progress? Is it a story about law or is it a story about organizing and politics and power? Because the story you just told about why January 5th is so magical, I think is uh, and so important uh, is that it's the, it's a kind of work that we actually don't necessarily associate with lawyers and litigating. Uh, it's just kind of people on the ground knocking on doors and showing up. And I wanted to know if you think that, I mean, I, I love how in the book you talk about how law does all this work when there is no power. Uh, but at the end of the day, are the foundations you're talking about, are they legal foundations or just people? I think it's both, Julie. And I think it's really important that it's both. It was incredibly important to me that this book not be a series of law and order stories about trials, right? Because we have learned that you can win all the trials in the world and still lose power, right? I mean, that in some sense is, is you know, one of the sad lessons of the last six years. And so I needed to broaden out how I thought about about both power and politics and law in order to have a more kind of capacious view of what it is that law does. It's why there's a chapter about Vanita Gupta, who, you know, wasn't strictly doing legal work. She was doing organizing and coalition building. And it's why, you know, part of what Stacey Abrams does, she does because she's a terrific lawyer. And I think, you 
you know, the work they've done on fighting vote suppression is, is I think, classic legal work. But I also think it has to be more than that. It has to be building sort of political power and building coalitions. And that does have, I think, a legal component for sure. I mean, I, you know, there's a reason we tell voters to have their little card telling them what their rights are when they go to vote, right? Because that is a legal question. And that is also a political question. And I think I've been really struck. I mean, I guess I'd be curious what you all think. But when I see what's happening in Iran right now, I think the difference, it's not that it's not astonishing that women are, you know, burning their scarves and protesting and using their voices and gathering, but we have still got access to the ballot box. We have still got uh, the capacity to march into a court and get an injunction. Like We have this other amazing toolkit in addition to the power just of anger and voice. There is a toolkit of going into court and saying like, no, you can't keep migrant teens in jail at the border just because they want to terminate a pregnancy. And so I guess this is right. This is the, <laughs> the improv answer. Yes slash and. I think it's both. And I think that we are really well served when we think of legal work as far more than just prevailing in a trial. I think it is about organizing and it is about building power and building political power. And so I think the tools are, are myriad and different people use them different ways. And I want young lawyers to think of every one of those democracy building tasks as fundamentally legal work. Can we get a question from Julia, our other student who's joined us today? Hi, it's so good to meet you. And I'm so happy to be learning about these issues from you, the first most authority in the subject. You know, you mentioned Obergefell earlier, which, like Roe, relied on the 14th Amendment in establishing the constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And since the overturning of Roe, a major legal concern and personal concern has been whether we can still rely on the 14th Amendment to protect those other essential social rights. And I was wondering what women lawyers in particular can do now after Dobbs to save the 14th Amendment and to make sure that it can continue to thrive and guarantee the rights of women, the LGBTQ community and racial minorities. Julia, I love the question in part because I think it goes to these intersectionality, you know, concerns that we have to be thinking really hard about. It's way too easy to look at the fall of Dobbs as like a women's problem. And like I can tell you, having been on a lot of panels this summer, and probably Julie would say the same, that it's not helpful to be on all women panels talking to all women about the overturn of Roe because it's a way of saying this doesn't have anything to do uh, with other communities. And we know that's descriptively wrong for exactly the reasons you just said. The other thing I guess I would say is I, I, you know, and if anyone listened to my podcast, like I have become utterly obsessed in the last year with the work of Dorothy Roberts, Peggy Cooper Davis, uh, Michelle Goodwin. In other words, there have been black women scholars writing and thinking about. And a lot of this I learned from Professor Carol Anderson, from Catherine Frankie. But, you know, people. People who have been saying that what happened in Dobbs was not really an overturn of Roe, it was an overturn of Roe for the kinds of people who had access to abortion in the first place, right? And one of the things that I can't get past, and I really 
perseverated on this on my show and other people's shows um, this spring was during Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearing. You can remember hearing um, John Cornyn and Marsha Blackburn sort of poo-pooing, you know, all of the privacy rights in the 14th Amendment, making it sound as though they were just like made of whipped cream, you know, on the day that that Roe came down. It's all utterly meaningless. And I didn't hear anything from anyone on the Dem side explaining, no, actually, this is a very real and meaningful interest. This is not a joke. And more urgently, and this goes back to the work of the historians, black women have been writing for decades that the reason the 14th Amendment and the 13th Amendment protected the right to bodily autonomy and to how you bring up your family and to privacy as we think of it in that bucket of rights that goes on to become Griswold and Obergefell and every else is because if you were a slave, nothing in the existing Bill of Rights protected you from the indignities of having your children taken away from you and used as economic uh, instruments, families that are separated, husbands and wives that were not allowed to be together. And if you read, I think it's very, very clear that that was the agenda. The interest in creating the 14th Amendment was in part to give formerly enslaved people the right to have a family that they sort out themselves and to raise their children the way they do it themselves. And when you go back and you read, oh, it's all there. And by the way, if you read all those historians that I didn't study in law school because nobody shared it with me, it's all there. And so I think my answer to you is part of it is really lifting up history that we have allowed to be forgotten. And that when you hear Sam Alito just, you know, there's no word abortion in the Constitution and this is all these, you know, substantive due process rights are just a fiction. And we let that slide. We are giving away the actual history around the ratification and the principles that were being enshrined at the time. And so I think one of the things, and I know this is a really wonky answer, but I told you I was psyched to talk to lawyers because this is not an answer I can like give in a minute. But I think to reclaim that history and to say honestly, this is the interest that was being protected and this is why. And if you think that's nothing, then you don't get to tell us that you don't want your kid to learn critical race theory in school because, by the way, those are the same interests. And so I think we have to be really badass, fearless historians and say if you're going to – Jed's going to, you know, now just going to like smash me over the head with all of his history stuff. But I really think, you know, we we have (laughs) – We have history. We have history to support all this, and we let it go. And we don't explain it, and we don't remember it, and we don't teach it. So I think part of what I want to see, in addition to, you know, picking up the instrumentalities of the law in state houses, the way California and New York are doing, you know, to protect women, that's all important, and I don't diminish it. But I think we have ceded immense amount of historical ground and pretended that we're the party that just makes stuff up when that's just simply not true descriptively. And so I think reclaiming that and standing behind it is really a big part of what you all as young lawyers are going to, in my view, bring to the table. So one thing that I'm reminded of in your retelling here of Reconstruction and slavery is that, you know, women have indeed been telling that story for years, including Harriet Beecher Stowe and a book that most high school students until it gets, I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin is the story that should be familiar to everybody about this background. It's the plot of Uncle Tom's Cabin is that 
slaves had their own rights to be a family torn apart by slavery. And that was the book that Abraham Lincoln, when he saw Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, this is the little lady that started this war. And that's also part of the battle over history about canceling books, right? I mean, it's it's only a matter of time, but like it, the victors write the history or the people most anxious about being the losers in a decade or in a generation are trying to cancel that history. And even when colleagues of ours, even when we even when we write amicus briefs to the Supreme Court and 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 do that history. It's, it's, it's worth, I guess, Dahlia, the question I think is what kinds of audiences are we writing for? Are we unearthing that history because this court is going to listen? Or are you writing your history because you're talking to people like Julia and Sam as that next generation? I am a hundred percent confident in the following prediction. Nothing that I have written or said is going to affect, um, you know, the, the six conservative justices on the Supreme Court. I, I'm very confident, um, that this is, it goes back to Julie's question about power. Uh, law is not super interesting when you have the power to say what legal history is. So I, you know, I, I'm certainly not writing for them. And I'm always mindful of Justice Scalia saying he always said, I write my dissents for the law students, right? And they were powerful dissents. And I think that Justice Sotomayor and Justice uh, Ginsburg have said the same thing, that their dissents are for history. They're a letter to the future to say, uh, no, I <laughs> this is wrong. And so I think part of what I wanted to do with the book really was to give and and you nailed it, you know, a generation of young women who are coming up who don't quite understand what, what they learned in con law one is not the law this year. Can't quite figure out, by the way, what the major questions doctrine is because I don't know what it means and don't understand the new test for, you know, uh, 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 separating church and state because I don't know what the test is. So instead of doctrine, you're having to learn power. And that sucks. I'm sorry. I got to at least have the illusion of learning doctrine in law school. But I think that being hopeless is just not the answer. And so for me, I think what I wanted for this book was to say, and and this is such a theme in the book. I mean, I, I'm sure you all picked it up. And I know, Julie, you kind of have thought about this, too. Um, but it, a theme in the book is that every one of these lawyers at some point says, dude, the law sucks. Like, it is the instrument of oppression of women. It always has been. We've had a couple of, you know, shining moments where it wasn't. But this is not the machine that I want to use to effectuate rights. And yet each of them does it. They all come to a different conclusion about it. You know, Becca Heller just says, I'm using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, period. Anita Hill practically writes a sonnet to the law. So they each arrive at a different place in terms of what do you do with a system that is so completely rigged against you when you're trying to repurpose it to help yourselves. But I think that's why the young, brilliant lawyers are going to do this work because like I'm jaded and grumpy and you are jaded and grumpy, but look at, look at, uh, you know, Julia and Sam over there, they can do this. So I, I want to, this is a point of the book. That's maybe the most poignant when I read your at the aftermath of sitting through the Kavanaugh hearing. And and where you basically said you you know you quit you quit the Supreme Court right you know uh, uh, in that aftermath of of the, this legitimacy crisis I I do think it's worth pausing that in the middle of the Kavanaugh uh, appointment Dahlia you and I we we had a lot of exchanges over what we knew I just have to share one thing that you know uh, one anecdote that came out about 
when, when, when Julie and I were in law school, we knew something was up with Kaczynski. So I, Dahlia, you sort of, pro, you sort of prodded, you actually prodded me to like, to speak out. And I, I just want to share a moment when I was a 2L and we were sitting in property and our property professor brought Judge Kaczynski in and he was funny and he was engaging and he was smart and he showed openness to different points of view. And then after the, afterward, we, we were, you know, Ninth Circuit judge. And the, the, the first thing that Yale Law School students talk about is, uh, um, when, when can I apply for a clerkship there? And a few of the, a few of the three L's were talking and said, well, we hear that women are not, well, women don't apply to Kaczynski. And I said, why? And the rumor and the fall of 1999 was that Judge Kaczynski doesn't hire women. Now something had percolated as of 1999, 23 years ago, but there's so many. And so the story, I just want to invite you to talk a little bit about your own experience and reflections about both Kaczynski and Kavanaugh and what, and, and what you advice you'd give to law students who are also heading into that complicated world of, 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 of men behaving badly or, and, and men covering up for the other, for their mentors who behave badly. I'm more interested in what Julie thinks about this, but um, maybe I'll start and Julie, you can you can amplify what you think. But I, you know, I, I, I mean, for folks who haven't yet read the book, I think I would just say that my experience was exactly yours, Jed. I had known of, you know, misbehavior, not just rumors, you know, firsthand uh, experiences of improper conduct from when I was clerking at the Ninth Circuit. The words open secret no longer have any meaning, but it was such an open secret that I would routinely tell young women not to clerk for him and give up, by the way, uh, the rocket to the Supreme Court because it's not worth it. Uh, There's no such thing as just taking a year of, you know, humiliation and and abuse, uh, it's not life is too short. Uh, so we all knew, everybody knew, and and to this day, Dahlia, I wonder if you got advice uh, when you were a student or as you were climbing up in your career that sometimes I think, I mean, I think that law is in some ways easy and power is hard, uh, and I think part of the reason power is hard because uh, is that it's not just about getting people to show up. Uh, I think, and this is the way that you put it uh, in the Kaczynski materials in the book, which I found so kind of poignant and wrenching, was that there are all these bargains about the open secrets, uh, that somehow uh, every advancement that women make come at some kind of personal cost or uh, some move by which you give up on the thing that you're really uh, aiming for. And in some ways, the invisibility that you talk about in terms of women lawyers and our contributions, it's all that that invisibility is so tied up with compromise being so central to what women are supposed to be good at. Yeah, that's exactly right. You have now twice identified it better than me, you know, what the problem is. And I think that there's a there's a. There's a coda even to that, which is even more dispiriting, which I talk about a little bit in the book. And I quote, I block quote Leah Lippman, who's thought about this harder than anyone, Professor Leah Lippman, who was both someone who came forward and put her name uh, on, uh, you know, a Washington Post article as somebody who'd also suffered uh, very recently, uh, uh, you know, inappropriate behavior from Judge Kaczynski, but who also really makes the point that that handful of women who come forward, then it becomes 
means they're minor. Like I major in the Supreme Court and I minor in Me Too and the Article Three Judiciary. And it's not fair or right that in addition to the complicity and the power and the secret keeping and the covering and then knowing that you've covered for such a long time that you can't not <laughs> do it anymore because you're complicit too, but that the women who have come forward then have to go on all the panels. They have to testify before Congress. I mean, I talk in the book about uh, Liv Warren, who um, uh, you know, uh, testified before Congress about Judge Reinhardt in the last uh, year of his life. I mean, nobody wants this to be their job. All of these people have other jobs, and then they become tasked with being on every you know judicial reform panel and every conversation. And then I think over and above all that, nothing changes. I mean, the changes can be you know we have a better tip line, or you know we now have more clarity on how you can report. But the fact of the matter is we still have open secrets in the judiciary. We still have lifetime tenure and almost impossibility of removal and judges who still march around saying, well, the only solution to this is to never hire women. You know, I mean, it's not as though the system is fixing itself. It's just that a handful of people become part of this pileup of, you know, people who have given their lives over to it. And I guess maybe, you know, I would just end on Christine Blasey Ford, who I I think has given more than any human being uh, that I know of uh, to try to be the voice and the face and uh, the storytelling. And everybody looked at her and said, I believe her, including Chuck Grassley, right, including for a moment, Donald Trump and nothing changed. And I think what some of the things you've been talking about are intersectionality and the, these larger culture wars over race, immigration and sex and identity. And so, so when, I, when I was reading your book, I kept thinking there's a great Jewish writer named Aviva Zornberg. And she, I can't remember who she quoted, but Aviva Zornberg has this great line that there are two kinds of stories. The traditional version is a man goes on a, an adventure, a man goes on a journey. And the other kind of story is a stranger comes to town. And this works for Pixar movies, by the way, every Pixar movie. It, it actually works for everything. <laughs> But Aviva Zornberg's comment, she's a, a traditional biblical scholar. She says it's actually two versions of the same story, just from a different perspective. And the reason why your book is that strikes me that way is, is that you're kind of telling the story of a woman goes on an adventure, these women, women heroes. But the other side of the story is these are strangers that come to town, like Robbie Kaplan, a stranger coming to Charlottesville. But the larger story is just this, the way that our culture has strangeness. And, you know, the story of, it's kind of like lady justice and also gender injustice in your book or, or fighting American white supremacy and misogyny is what your book is about. And so, so, you know, you've got the Muslim ban in a couple chapters. You have Charlottesville and you being in Charlottesville and talking about your boys in Charlottesville. Um, Vanita Gupta and Stacey Abrams, these are all women going on an adventure because there's they, strangers coming to town and America is strange itself. And this all begs that begs a prior question, which is why is there so much support among white men and white women to to have that to be that stranger coming to town, to create that town of 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 xenophobia and misogyny and, and support for that Trumpism. And so like there's a gen the story of your book is really a gender a bi as a gender war for both men and women those those men marching in Charlottesville saying Jews will not replace us I mean I think maybe undergirding your question Jed is you know what do we do about fear right 
And this is a book in so many ways that wants to answer in the, in the tradition of you. You give me Aviva Zornberg, I will give you Dr. King, but that like you have to answer <laughs> fear. You have to answer fear with love. Right. And I and I do think that I'd say that not to be a Hallmark card, but I think that in a lot of ways, there's a reason that, you know, Vanita, whose parents were from India and, uh, you know, uh, Bridget Amiri, whose dad came from Iran. I mean, a lot of these women are really examples of what you're describing, which is people who probably if they had stayed in their home countries, like wouldn't have had this amazing American success story of, you know, being launched into the highest echelons of the legal profession. And I think in a way it makes them both that insider outsider split screen thing where they can empathize with people who are being turned away at the border during the travel ban. But it makes them absolutely like in the tank for American constitutional democracy because they look at their own lives and they say, you know, as I say, my grandmothers wouldn't recognize me. They would not recognize me because they couldn't have credit cards, right? So like I think we need to think about both and, again, I'm repurposing both and, which is like the fear is crippling, right? That's Tucker Carlson every single night. That's the great replacement theory. That is, by the way, why white supremacists and Nazis with torches who flew in from California were saying like this, you know, Jews will not replace us as though the town was theirs. It wasn't. They were the outsiders. But they came to town to terrorize black people and Jews and people of color because they think the whole country, every inch of the country, is being overrun by the kinds of people that they do not deem to be fully American. And Becca Heller talks about this in her chapter. Vanita talks about this in her chapter. Nina Perales talks about this in her chapter. This otherness, foreignness, you are not really from here, I think is the animating fear. And it is why I think some of these attorneys, you know, Robbie Kaplan is, you know, openly gay. And, you know, that also makes Robbie and a Jew an insider outsider, you know, who's at the highest tier of, you know, legal advocacy, who also is told routinely to go back to where she came from. And so I think that what I wanted to do is think about, you know, and it goes back to, to text and history and founding documents and how you think about a country that is open to uh, uh, others and that wants to take the best of others, right, in that kind of amazing, you know, Statue of Liberty poem way, which I think the originalists want to now take off the Statue of Liberty. But, you know, I think that like the idea that this is a, I get that you're scared. I get it. And that this country is unrecognizable to your Norman Rockwell sensibility. But I like see that fear and I like raise you like love and uh, aspiration because the alternative is not anything that any of us on this call would recognize. So Dahlia, uh, at the end of the hour, can you please leave us with our reasons for hope uh, amid all this fear and despair and the crisis that we're in today? I'm hopeful, you know, in part because I'm on a Zoom with law students and I really do believe that I was asleep 
through law school, you know. I just didn't think that I was going to have to use my, you know, trusty sword uh, to any purpose. And I think they do. I'm looking, you know, at a generation of young lawyers who is much more awake, engaged, uh, well-educated, savvy than I ever was. And that is progress, believe it or not. I just was like, ooh, I hope the firm has sushi, you know, like all of us, <laughs> right? Like, so, so that's, that's a lot. And, and then I also think before we say, oh, you know, the Supreme Court is hopeless and we're stuck with this for, you know, the next 40 years, it's worth thinking about the fact that a blue ribbon panel of very smart people came up with a whole bunch of solutions to structural court reform for the court and that we could be talking about those and that there are, you know, bills in uh, both the House and the Senate that are proposing what I think are doable, smart court reforms. We can talk about that, that very, very, very smart people are working on the Electoral Count Act, are working on reforming the Electoral College, are doing work around gerrymandering and vote suppression in this, like, monstrosity that is the independent state legislature theory. So we don't have to invent these solutions. They're there and they are the toolkit of lawyers. And so what gives me hope is, again, you know, I don't I think that what we have that is potential and needs to be kinetic is using all of these legal powers that we have and not acting as though, you know, we're, we're in a burning house and there's no way out because there are a million ways out and people who are smart and committed and courageous and often, you know, like Polly Murray, largely forgotten by history, have done this work for a very long time. They are showing us how to do it. And so I just think I'm not quite prepared to say at present we have no tools left in our arsenal. So, you know, I guess we'll just roll over. And I think that that is a hopeful story. Absolutely. Well, lawyers are workaholics. Uh, <laughs> And that is a reason to be hopeful because there is a lot of work that we have cut out for us in the future. Well, I'm certainly feeling more hopeful after this conversation. Thank you, Dahlia. It was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. We'd like to thank Fordham Law School, especially our Dean Matthew Diller and Associate Deans Joe Landau and Young Jay Lee for supporting this podcast. Huge thanks to our law students at Fordham, Julia and Sam, for calling the hotline today with your questions for Dahlia. And of course, to our brilliant guest, Dahlia Lithwick, for sharing your answers and your hard-hitting and hopeful book with us. The Constitutional Crisis Hotline music is Climbing by Poddington Bear, a.k.a. Chad Crouch. The logo design is by Clinton Webb of Agave Studios. We are deeply grateful to the wonderful Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock of Yellow Armadillo Studios, the saints of podcast production, for making our podcast possible. Please listen and subscribe to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline, a Fordham Law podcast, wherever you get your podcasts and help get the word out. Follow us at CN Crisis Hotline on Twitter. That's at CN Crisis Hotline. And check out our website, constitutionalcrisishotline.com. We'd also love to hear from our listeners, especially students who are trying to process the crises that face constitutional democracy. Call the hotline with your questions, your fears, your dreams. You can send a voice memo to Constitutional Crisis Hotline, and we will bring on thoughtful guests on the hotline to go deeper than the hot takes and to foster real debate on those urgent questions. Email us at concrisishotline at gmail.com with no punctuation, concrisishotline at gmail.com. 
And we look forward to hearing from you and talking to you soon.